This morning we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 5 through 8. In the Pew Bible, this is found on page 1347. As you turn to that, I just want to note uh, how wonderful the providence of our Lord is. Uh, I had no planning involved that we would come to Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8 on Labor Day weekend, uh, a text that addresses how we are to, to work. Uh, so we just note that this is not a result of some remarkable planning on my part, but rather a result of the providence of our Lord. Uh, but certainly this is uh, profitable for us, uh, and we remark upon uh, how good the Lord is uh, as He orchestrates these things in His own perfect timing. Uh, we want to look at Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8, as we continue our series of sermons through this epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, to the church in Ephesus, but also by extension to all of us. So we read as follows, Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service, as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Now, thus far for this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ our Christian faith is to be a faith that impacts and influences all aspects of our lives. Sometimes I use a phrase, it ought to impact our Mondays, our Wednesdays, our Fridays, just as well as our Sundays. Our Christian faith is to be, and if it is a true Christian faith, it will be pervasive in its influences including not only uh, the so-called religious activities of the Lord's Day, but also the, if we can call it this, the ordinary activities of every single day. When you are a Christian, you are always a Christian. Not only do we want to begin by emphasizing that, but we also want to remind ourselves of the structure of Paul's epistles, he always begins with what we have called the theological indicative, certain truth statements about the redemption that God has accomplished in and through the Lord Jesus Christ that is applied by the Holy Spirit. And then having established those theological indicatives, those truths, those realities of God's grace, Paul then fleshes out what exactly impact this has practically speaking, what we call the moral imperatives. Because this is true, because God in Christ has redeemed you, now therefore do these things or don't do these things. And I just want to remind us of that basic structure lest we be tempted to fall into some type of legalism or moralism, lest we think, well, what we did on Sunday morning was we got a certain discourse or a certain lecture on how to be good, industrious citizens. Rather, what we're doing this morning as we continue expounding this epistle is we're following these practical, moral imperatives that flow out of the theological indicatives. Because we have been redeemed by God's grace, we are to live a certain way, and we are to work a certain way. 
We want to look at this theme as we attempt to unfold our text. Christian employees are to serve their masters. And remember the fourth commandment, the Lord's Day. But remember that in the context of the fourth commandment, there is this creation ordinance of a routine that is set in place from the very dawn of human history. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Christian employees are to serve their masters. Well, notice, first of all, the duty of Christian employees, and then secondly, the focus of Christian employees, and then thirdly, the motive for Christian employees. The duty, the focus, and the motive in regards to Christian employees. But I want to have a bit of an extended introduction to try to address some weighty matters, some important matters for our understanding. The Apostle Paul writes his epistle underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He does so in a particular context. And in that particular context of the Roman world, slavery was a very, very common institution. Not slavery in the exact same pattern as which it was practiced uh, within the British colonies or within the United States of America uh, in a former time. The slavery that was common in the Roman era was especially slave that were a result of either military conquest or of severe indebtedness. So if you lived in a foreign land, and if the Romans had come, and if they had conquered your country, so to speak, oftentimes you would have found yourself, as a result, enslaved. Or perhaps through misfortune, you had extreme debts, you could be sold into slavery. And now there were certain rights that the Roman law afforded you as a slave, and there was the opportunity sometimes perhaps to gain, earn, buy your freedom. And the slaves in the Roman culture were not necessarily just confined to the most basic menial labors. Uh, slaves would have included teachers. Slaves would have included even physicians, masters of homes, things of these nature. But slavery was a very, very common social construction within the days in which the Apostle Paul writes. And notice that his primary concern is not doing away with that social construction, but rather addressing persons who lived within that social construction. If we can say it this way, he's not so concerned with trying to redeem the way that society is structured, but rather to address how redemption ought to impact persons who then live out the reality of that redemption within the social structures that exist. He's more focused, as the gospel is, on the transformation of persons who then go out and live out the reality of that gracious transformation, and as Christians go out and live the reality of their redemption, they have a positive impact upon culture, 
And so the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, as they began to rediscover the doctrines of grace and also then the implications of the doctrines of grace, the Protestant Reformation had a remarkable influence upon society, including the whole area of labor and industry, as well as, for example, education and medicine and scientific discoveries. Because when redemption is consistently lived out within the lives of the church, as Christians go about their organic life, it will have a positive impact upon society. And so Paul's writing primarily, of course, to the church in Ephesus, and he's saying this is what your redeemed lives ought to look like when you head off into the social institutions that exist within your day. A regenerated, a converted person will live counterculturally also when they punch in at work or when they sit down in the office or when they engage uh, in commerce, trade, and industry. We look, first of all, then at the duty of Christian employees, and it's pretty basic. It is a duty of obedient service out of sincerity. The main primary command of the Word of God, as you see it there in verse 5, and again, Scripture is quite straightforward, quite simple. A bond servants, which we in our context apply, especially to employees, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Be obedient. We notice, of course, that this is the same word that is used in verse 1, children obey your parents, and so it simply means to listen to their instructions, to listen to their commands, to listen to that which they tell us to do. And of course, here again we give the one qualification uh, that this obedience is limited by obedience to God Almighty, so that if someone in a superior position commands us to engage in acts of sin, then we humbly resist. But short of that, this command is comprehensive. It's not limited by your willingness to recognize the advantage of obedience. It's not obey if you find it favorable. It's simply obey. And I readily recognize that this strikes against the very heart of our love of autonomy. Autonomy is self-law, self-governed. We like to do what we like to do. And we have this mantra, especially in Western culture, that we are the captains of our own destiny, that we are self-built, that we are independent. But you can't really reckon that with the exhortations of the gospel. Bondservants, obey. Obey your masters in the flesh. Well, I we're probably thinking, why? Because there is an understanding of a structure of authority that reflects the very nature of God Himself. Now, a few big theological words, and I'll attempt to explain them. Within the triune God, there is one divine essence, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those three persons, of course, are equal when it comes to 
the divine essence, co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential. But as those three persons work, there is what theologians call a certain economical subordinationism. So the Son delights to do the will of the Father, and the Spirit delights to glorify the Son and the Father. And that whole structure of authority is reflected within human interactions, or at least is supposed to be reflected. So why is it that employees are to obey employers? Why is it that this is to be part of what the Christian life is? The answer is because that's the way God Himself exists. The Son obeys the will of the Father. And not only obeys the will of the Father, but delights in the will of the Father. And that brings us to the second sub-point. This duty of obedient service is to flow out of sincerity. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. Be obedient to your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart. And that sincerity of heart means that this is to be a genuine expression of recognizing the position of the person in authority. And he'll elaborate later on, not just with eye service. Uh, Our obedience to our masters, to our employees, to those who are in positions of authority is not to just flow out of a desire to look good when they're watching, but rather out of this recognition that God has been pleased to put this person in this position of authority, and God has been pleased to exhort me to honor that position of authority and to honor the people that He has placed within that position of authority as has He revealed these things within His providence within my lives. And I just want to pause and encourage us to reflect upon what is your heart attitude towards people who have been legitimately placed by God's providence in positions of authority. Do you have a tough time with authority? Especially when God's providence has put you under authority rather than in authority. Can you honestly, sincerely say, that you desire to be obedient, not just with eye service, not just when others are watching, but out of a pure and genuine desire to be pleasing unto the Lord. This is very important because as Scripture says elsewhere, God looks and evaluates not only our actions, but also our attitudes. And he sees even when no one else sees. And so a practical application, the way we work in our employment, there should not be a drastic difference in how we work if the boss or the foreman or the owner is on-site or off-site. In the construction field, if the boss is there, our work ought to be the same as if he is not there. 
in the office, our work ought to look the same if our supervisor is there or if he is not there. In the factory, our production ought to be basically the same if the superior is watching or not watching. This is radical. But this is the duty of Christian employees. And it's all to flow out of a particular focus, and that's our second point, the focus of Christian employees. Our work, our labor, is not just to be motivated by earthly material financial gain. And I emphasize not just motivated by that. Scripture is clear uh, that the laborer is worthy of his reward. Uh, This was found even in the Old Testament, even with the animals, they They were instructed, the Israelites were, not to muzzle the ox as the ox treaded the grain, not to restrict even the ox from partaking of the fruit of their labor. And so God has designed the entire economical structure uh, that usually that which we need is obtained by the work of our hands, so to speak. And he's also designed that there are opportunities to, to grow and to mature in responsibilities that then also come with appropriate financial rewards or returns, you might say. And so many, many a Christian institution has been well supported by individuals who understand a biblical work ethic, who give themselves with zeal and with dedication uh, to industry, and who then receive, by God's providence, a very favorable return upon their industry. And in part, they enjoy the fruit of their labors, and in part, uh, they also then, out of gratitude, give with an abundance so that Christian institutions might be maintained and grow and increase and have an influence upon uh, the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom of God. All of these things are true and can be biblically supported. You can think of many of the patriarchs who were very financially well-off. You can also think of those who supported the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as well as the Apostle Paul. But this is not to be the exclusive focus. Rather, the primary focus is to be upon the recognition that we are to serve Christ. That we are to serve Christ as our ultimate master. And that our earthly masters, our earthly employers our earthly bosses, if we want to use the common vernacular terminology, are are only there because Christ is pleased to put them in that position. But when we engage in our vocational labors, ultimately we serve Christ Himself. And that's found in the end of verse 5 there, as to Christ. It's also found in verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. It's found in verse 7, as to the Lord. And this is inspired repetition. The Apostle Paul wants to make sure that he drives into the hearts of his hearers that you are to work the way you work, you are to labor the way you labor, recognizing that as you labor, you labor unto the Lord. You are serving the Lord. And and this is part of what was so radical when it came to the Protestant Reformation because the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages had developed, so to speak, a two-tiered idea of labor or or, or of work. And and there was the clergy, which they said was the sanctified labor, the holy work, the priest, etc. And then there was the 
the secular vocations. There, there was the non-essentials, you might say, to borrow recent terminology that ought never be returned to. And, and they would look upon, you know, the, the common laborer in the Middle Ages and the Roman Catholic understanding with, so to speak, a disregard. But when the Protestant reformers returned to the understanding of Scripture, they rediscovered that all work that is morally legitimate, when done properly, is done unto the Lord. And, and, and this really, really needs to be rediscovered because this congregation, I firmly believe, is what gives a transformation to the understanding of vocational labor away from just a grudging, grinding through the menial task, just punching in, punching out, getting my hours in, getting my paycheck, getting to the weekend, getting to retirement so I can be done with work as soon as I possibly can. That, I would submit to you, is not scriptural. That's not biblical. The son doesn't say, I just want to get the work done as quickly as I can, Father, so I can be done. I don't have to do anything anymore. But rather the son delights in essence saying to the father, whatever you give me to do, I want to do it. And so the Christian ought to, figuratively speaking, look to Christ and say, Christ, whatever you give me to do, I want to do it. And that's why the Bible comes and it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily. Do it with enthusiasm. Do it with energy. Do it with zeal. Do it with the harnessing of all of your abilities, all of your skill sets, all of your talents, as unto the Lord. The application of this, and I borrow a story recorded in William Hendrickson's commentary on Ephesians a Christian bricklayer. He recounts this story. A Christian bricklayer was laboring, and if you've ever worked for a bricklayer, you know bricklaying is labor. And this is way before modern equipment. The Christian bricklayer was wheeling loads of brick, building a building. Not a, not a church building, a building. And someone stopped him and said, what are you doing? And his reply was, I am building a sanctuary for the Lord. Just wheeling bricks? Yes. Wheeling bricks. Setting bricks. Now perhaps in our hearts we chuckle and think, Really? Really? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. Sitting down behind the desk, going through the quarterly reports. As unto the Lord, entering into the classroom with the lesson plans, teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic, as unto the Lord, harvesting the crops, tending to the livestock, as unto the Lord, painting walls, shingling roofs, 
pouring driveways, washing plates, switching out laundry, going to school, doing the homework. Do it all unto the Lord. Because this is why we have been created, and this is why we have been redeemed. With humble hearts, let us hear the words of our text. Obey your masters according to the flesh with sincerity of heart as unto the Lord. Now I want to encourage you to reflect. Tuesday morning, well for some of you, you don't get the holiday off. Monday morning for you, but Tuesday morning for the rest of you, when you enter into your place of employment, do you have something of this mentality? I am here to serve the Lord. I'm going to engage in this day's activities as unto the Lord. But the objection can be heard. You don't know my boss. You don't know my place of employment. You don't know what my day is like. And the Apostle Paul, I think, anticipates this potential objection with what we consider in our third point, the motive for Christian employees. The motive is found in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. I just want to pause and look at that word, knowing. What we talked last Sunday evening about the primacy of the intellect or how our minds are to be transformed with a certain knowledge that comes especially through the revelation of God within His Word. We do what we do because we believe what we believe. And so at the end of the day, it's not so much what we know about our earthly boss that ought to motivate our work ethic, but rather what we know about our heavenly master. Because earthly employers at times are not fair. But our heavenly master is always equitable, and you might say, is always gracious. And it is from him especially that we look to receive. I want to be clear that this motive is not some type of meritorious reward, uh, that if we serve the Lord for a week, we go to him and we say, okay, here's my time card. Give me now some providential gift. But out of God's grace, God delights to reward his children to, so to speak, crown his own grace with his own gifts. And, and, and really, you can look forward, and, and there, again, there are certain aspects within this earthly life in which we receive rewards from our Heavenly Father, uh, but we need, we need a greater focus. And if you take everything that you have ever done as far as labor as far as work. Will it not be a reward to hear your heavenly master say upon the completion of all that he has given you to do, to hear him say, well done, 
my good and faithful servant. Do you have an eye of faith towards that? You see how that will motivate you in a consistent type of a way to engage in our callings, in our vocation, in our industry, in our work. Imagine what that will be like to say, here is all that I, by, by your grace, yes, by your providence, by you gave me the strength, you gave me the talents, you gave me the energy, you gave me the opportunity, you gave me everything, Lord. And acknowledging that even when I did everything, I was still an unprofitable servant, and I'm only here by your grace, I'm only here by your mercy, but to take the entirety of our lives and to present it unto our Lord and to hear Him in His words that drip with grace and mercy, to hear Him say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. I gave you this particular interest. Maybe it's in engineering. Maybe it's in accounting. Maybe it's in computer technology. Maybe it's in construction. I gave you this interest. I gave you the skill sets. I gave you these providential opportunities. I made you this way. And you then took those talents and you did what you could with them. Not ultimately for the accolades of the human observers around you. Not so you could hear from your coworkers, wow, you're really good at that. Not so you could hear the, the cheers of the spectators, but that you could experience something of the blessings of knowing that your heavenly Father through Christ, is saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. I long, I desire for myself to grasp this more and more, and I long and desire for all of us as a congregation to grasp this more and more. And I can't help but think of the illustration of Eric Liddell, who became a missionary, but before that was an Olympic runner. In Chariots of Fire, the story is told, and I borrow this uh, from Alistair Begg. He's told this story more times than I ever will. But Eric Liddell well, eventually became an Olympic gold champion, and his older sister, I suppose as older sisters sometimes do, was critical of Eric and of his running. And she said, you know, Eric, you really ought to do something for the Lord. And Eric's response was, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now, I know that can be abused if taken out of context. But with humility of heart, to reflect and say, God gave me the ability to paint. And when I paint well, I experience my Father's pleasure. God gave me the ability to care for livestock. And when I care for them well, I experience my Father's pleasure. God gave me the ability 
to engineer things. And when I engineer well, and when I build a product that is profitable for society, I experience my Father's pleasure. This, I would submit to you, is the ultimate motivation for the Christian employee. May it be our motivation, and may it be the motivation of our children and our grandchildren throughout all of the generations until time gives way back into eternity. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to reflect something of your nature. We thank you that you have not given us to a life of mere idleness, uh, of just sitting by, uh, watching time escape, that you have given us work to do, vocational labors, certain skill sets, certain interests, certain providential opportunities. Father, give us also hearts that will seize the opportunities that you give to us. May we know how we ought to live, live out practically the reality of our redemption. We do pray, Father, for the forgiveness of our sins, for we know that we fall woefully short of the ideal. And may the ideal as it is set forth in Scripture not become overly burdensome to us, but may it motivate us. And may we be faithful in all that you have called us to do until such a time as you bring us into the experience of our eternal reward. And on that day, by your grace, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, may each of us hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.